I um, was looking um, through my own writing today, uh, as I will do sometimes to see if there's anything worth repeating. Um, And I was somewhat struck by how both of my books address steps six and seven. And they address them in completely different ways. Um, In one breath at a time, I talk a lot about something that's really related to the meditation we did tonight, which is just really getting connected to our feelings and allowing that connection itself to help us to let go. Just as we feel into our experience and we see our own suffering, that we um, naturally can let go. There's kind of a natural process. And I'm reminded that that I like to actually read the steps. So step six is we were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character, the defects of character that we just wrote the inventory about in steps four and five. And step seven says, we humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. The, in A Burning Desire, my newer book, I take a much more uh, Buddhist kind of approach and uh, t- take the step as an opportunity to explore the various Buddhist practices and how I see them operate in the process of letting go. You can say in the process of letting go of our character defects or our shortcomings, if you, if you want. I remember when I was writing One Breath at a Time, and I, I felt, as I started the book, very confident about writing about the first four or five steps. I felt that I really knew, kind of, I had a lot of ideas already, and it was, wasn't difficult to... Um, come up with things to say. But when I came to steps six and seven, I realized I didn't have any clear idea what they meant to me. And indeed, I'd always been frustrated with Bill Wilson's interpretation of these steps in, um, in the 12 and 12, the 12 steps and 12 traditions, which is his commentary on the 12 steps. And particularly, his emphasis on humility in step seven, I found <coughs> frustrating because I felt that he was avoiding the main topic, which was not to me humility, but removing my shortcomings. And certainly his point, I suppose, is that humility is what gets in the way of removing our shortcomings. But still, I've never been satisfied with it. And maybe that's because Bill didn't get to practice Buddhism, um, (laughs) as far as I know certainly did a lot of other things, um, and, I'm, and I'm sure that he read some about Buddhism at, at some point. But I think that this is something that the, well, l- let me complete my, my thought if there was one, which I think was about my own discovery of these steps that, that Although I came to them in my writing with the feeling that I didn't know what they were about, in a way I felt that I learned more about them and that, I, that actually what I've written about these steps is some of the most valuable stuff that I've written. It's 
So if you haven't read these books or if you haven't read them lately, uh, you know, I, maybe I'm not ex showing a lot of humility, <laughs> but but I, I, I think that I, I've had some some pretty interesting insights, mainly because I didn't think I know knew anything about them. And because I hadn't sort of figured it out beforehand, I went into my exploration of them with this real beginner's mind. What are these steps about? So my fundamental premise, as I expressed in that exercise earlier, is that these steps are about letting go. Humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Okay, we're going to forget about him, and we're in fact going to forget about anybody or anything removing anything. But really, it being about letting go of or changing ourselves. So, so among the things that I ask myself, one of my fundamental questions about the path, whether it's the path of recovery or this path of Buddhism or the path of life, is how do we change? How do we change for the good? How does it happen? In response to one of the questions tonight, uh, as I talked about the program, you know, I said what, what I often say is, this stuff isn't magic. You know, there isn't some step or some process you can do that's guaranteeing some change. You know, every, this is kind of the, the business of spirituality and this business of healing that people market things. This will make you happy. You know, awakening joy. I mean, great, great process, but, you know, you might take the course and get depressed. You know, it's just, there's no guarantees. Um, you know, and it, you kind of open one of those yoga books or yoga magazines or something, and every page seems to have some solution. Just do this, you know, crystals and, and taro and you know, Sufi dancing. It's all, you know, just the guru, bit close to this great guru and feel his energy, you know. And all that stuff's great, you know. It's all great. Um, but I always want to know, how does it actually work? Happens to be the title of a chapter of <laughs> the big book about Alcoholics Anonymous, How It Works. Still doesn't really tell you, though, does it? <laughs> Tells you what to do, which is great. So a lot of the exploration for me of these steps is to ask, how does it work? What do we need to do? And my basic answer to that is it works in many different ways. And there are many th different things that work, and they work for different people at different times and in different ways. And so there is no single answer. Darn. You know? I mean, that's what we want, that magic pill, that solution. Come on. That's why we buy these magazines and why we go on these workshops and take these classes, because we think this is the one that's going to do it for me. Life and change are processes. Change is a process. You know, the, the idea of the toolbox, the spiritual toolbox, makes the most sense to me. I, and I need to keep that toolbox, I need to keep all the tools, kind of the rust off them, you know, and not forget, because sometimes I forget that I have a tool in there. Like, oh yeah, there's this tool it's called a phone. I should try that one. There's an article in the New York Times a couple days ago about how phone usage is way, way down. 
people are people. It, it, it's now when the phone rings, it's, it's considered an intrusion. Mm -hmm. How rude can you be calling me up? You know? <laughs> and it's sort of true, don't you? Sort of like make appointments and okay, why don't you call me around two? You know, and then I'll be prepared for it. I'll set aside the time, and we can have a call. But don't just call me. Come on, uh, you know, text me or email me or you know, send me a carrier pigeon or. Is that what those things are, carrier pigeons? Um, I forget. I forget my tools sometimes. You know. Definitely this tool of communicating. So, so precious. You know, therapy. I consider therapy to be one of the things, you know. And, um, antidepressants sometimes are just the thing, just the thing you need, you know. Um, it's not, uh, I just, if we, if we kind of decide what's okay and what isn't, sometimes we, we need that uh, thing that we don't want. <laughs> I know I've had to do things that I didn't want to do or that I didn't, didn't fit with my um, self-image, among them taking antidepressants for a couple of years. Um, Meditation retreats. I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to start listing all the things in the toolbox. Um, but what I do in, in A Burning Desire is I talk about mindfulness and insight, the practices around that. Calm and concentration, the practices around that. Loving kindness and compassion, the practices around that. And then contemplation and the uses of all these. Not, again, to say, oh, just do this, or just, just do loving-kindness, or just do concentration practice. But, but the blending and mixing, this is the, the, you know, the great challenge in, is that there isn't an answer that someone can give us, and that we have to stay attuned to ourselves and our own needs, moment by moment, day by day, month by month, year by year, as we grow, as we change, as we fall back, as we forget, as we get inspired, as we get depressed, we have to stay with what's happening now. Yesterday's solution is not necessarily, and is likely not going to work for today's problem. What's going on today? You know, we get into these ruts, the, the rote program or the rote meditation practice. This is what I do, you know, just 20 minutes of this, and then these prayers, and then I write, and then I'm done. Done my work. Really? Were you there for any of that? Were you engaged? Was your heart touched? Was your mind involved? What was happening? These days, you know, I don't go to, to a lot of meetings. And sometimes I think, well, first of all, when people ask me about that, do you still go to meetings? I feel a little, like, guilty, like, <laughs> yeah, sometimes. <laughs> but that's just not, like, what's going on right now. And I think I'm okay with that. I seem to be okay with that. I, and, and I can easily imagine a time when I'll go to lots more meetings again because of the way my life is. But um, 
I just don't think that's the solution that I need right now. And I don't recommend that. I don't go around, oh, you don't need meetings. What do you need them for? I don't go to them anymore. I do go to meetings from time to time. But if I, if I had you know, treated meetings 25 years ago the way I treat them now, I probably wouldn't have stayed sober. You know? But that's 25 years later. Am I supposed to be working the same program that I was working 25 years ago? Isn't this program supposed to be, make us happy, joyous, and free? It doesn't mean free like just do whatever I want, but it does hopefully mean that I'm changing and I'm growing, that, that, that I'm not staying the same. So I don't know exactly what you're supposed to do in these steps. I know what the steps say in the, in the big book. And I did that, that night. I certainly wasn't done. And, and certainly, again, Bill Wilson in The Twelve and Twelve reminds us that, that although there is this process, which is lovely in the steps of kind of doing your inventory and then reading it to someone or sharing it with someone and then going home and kind of going through the big book and thinking about how you've worked the steps and then kind of making this commitment to let go and asking God to remove your shortcomings. It's a lovely ritual and, and a good one, I think. Um, but not by any means the end of the process. In some sense, you know, processes don't have ends necessarily. And, and if there's a part of the steps that doesn't end, to me, it's these six and seven. Being ready, letting go. Being unready, getting ready, letting go. It's, um, it's maybe not so much that, um, I mean, one of the things that happens is that our habitual let's say, we use the language of the steps, our character defects, our shortcomings um, are so deeply embedded, conditioned in us, that um, although we can let go of them or we can diffuse them or uh, cool them for a period of time, they often will cycle back, maybe in a different form or in di- in the maybe the circumstances change and we think we've changed and then we get back in and with a similar relationship or a similar situation, and, and all of a sudden that thing that we thought we'd let go of comes back. And if we take this to mean that there's been some kind of a failure, then we're just going to be beating ourselves up or thinking, oh, I have to find some other program or do something else or this doesn't work. But rather than seeing that conditioning, the conditioning that, that, le- that was all there until that moment when we decided to let go, isn't just going to fizzle away because we asked God to remove it or because we even started, got sober or started to act differently. You know, decades of habitual thoughts, words, and deeds don't just get erased uh, with the drop of a step. So I'll read just this little part from uh, Step 7 in A Burning Desire, and this is mostly so that I can read you the quote from Ajahn Buddhadasa. 
Step seven is where we again run into the stumbling block of how God is supposed to change us. Again, we're faced with the idea of a magical process of being fixed by some external entity or force. Ajahn Buddhadasa addresses this question when he analyzes the biblical saying, ask and it will be given you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. Which to me, that step seven is really an echo of that saying from the Bible. It's one of the things that really makes it sound so um, biblical. He says about this passage, from the Buddhist point of view, this too is a matter of karma. We must act, that is, we must ask, seek, and knock for God to be moved. Mere faith is not enough. Even if one sits down to pray, it still will, be, will not be enough. In this context, the word ask implies an earnest effort to bring about a desired result. That is to say, we beseech the law of karma through our action and not merely with words. We beseech the law of karma through our action and not merely with words. This is, to me, such a key idea that brings together the idea of a higher power with a Buddhist teaching. The law of karma is the sort of central element of a Buddhist higher power, then working with it, beseeching it, <laughs> beseeching, uh, we, we beseech it with our actions. And again, I, I, I think it's important to reiterate that when we talk about karmic actions, we're talking about thoughts, words, and deeds, intentional thoughts, words, and deeds. Some thoughts will just come out of our conditioning, but the way we intentionally direct our minds the words we speak, and then the physical actions that we take, the deeds. Essentially, what he's saying is that we are reconditioning ourselves. We are deconditioning and reconditioning ourselves in a positive way. And this, from a Buddhist viewpoint, is how we change. It's very simple. Not easy. <laughs> it's not that magic pill that we would like, or magic uh, mantra, or magic prayer, or, uh, you know, dispensation. And I love in the Middle Ages they used to just buy, you know, these dispensations from the, from the priests, you know, pay, pay for those prayers to be removed. You know. It's work. It's a program of action. Yeah. Um, and then the uh, Buddhism gives us this beautiful framework for that action. Again, the Eightfold Path. Certainly the meditation aspect of it, the, the uh, li- Christopher Titmus calls it the um, lifestyle aspect of it. Our, our um, living in harmony with the precepts, our livelihood, right speech, uh, the wisdom aspects of it, cultivating right view and right intention, cultivating loving kindness, compassion. When anger arises, seeing it with mindfulness, bringing the intention 
to transform it. Cultivating loving kindness to counter it. Cultivating concentration to bring calm. All of these things are beseeching the law of karma through our action. If you came here hoping that I was going to give you some wisdom that was going to change everything for you, I can't do that. All I can tell you is about the work that I believe needs to be done, that you need to do. Manindraji, who was a great teacher, died just a couple years ago, and there's a, a new book out about him. One of the things that he used to say was, the Buddha solved his problem. You have to solve your problem. Such a nice, simple way of putting it. And, and he, he was implying, he wasn't saying, uh, there was behind this was the understanding that the Buddha not only solved his problem, but he showed you how he did it. And he gave you these tools. But he can't step in and take care of you in the way that we envision a kind of Turn our, turning our problems over to Jesus or, uh, or God to somehow take care of us. And of course, I, I, I know, you know my, uh, what I've seen of people who have really fulfilled the Christian path is that when they turn it over to Jesus, they basically try to live like Jesus. It's like, what would Jesus do? That's what they're saying, right? Same thing. What would Buddha do? It's all about karma. You know, what you sow, so shall you weep. Or weep, depending on the <laughs> what you do. So I, I'm, uh, I'm not going to go into all the details of the things that uh, that I talk about in these two books because I, I really think that they're better. Uh, read carefully and for me to kind of try to summarize everything, do this, this, this which I've somewhat done, but, but, um, but I do hope you'll explore that, uh, those parts of these books more, more, than any, more than anything. I think that's where the heart of these books are, which is appropriate since six and seven are right in the middle of the steps. They are the middle steps, right? There's up to five and six, seven, eight to ten. My math isn't perfect, but um, maybe they're just, I guess there is, is there not a middle when you have 12? Anyway, yeah, the middle would be between 6 and 7, right? Okay, thanks. Don't let my daughter know, because she's, she's taking a lot of math these days. Sometimes she asks me questions. So I'd, I'd rather um, open it up for, for the last 15 minutes of some discussion. Yeah. Well, it's very interesting that you would bring this topic up because it's something that um, I was confronted with at my last meeting that I attended. Um, specifically, it revolved around our need to have this quote-unquote spiritual experience. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I sat and I listened to what... I, was, I tried to put myself in the place of somebody that was searching to save their life. And they were really saying nothing. You just have to keep working. Mm -hmm. 
And I felt so sad for those people that were sitting there. I saw that this time, and I haven't mm -hmm. seen it as clearly as I did. Okay. Yeah. Well, the question of what is a spiritual experience, I think, is a really important one. Um, again, something that I addressed. I, I, I'm not doing this to be, I don't know what, it, you know, make you read my books, but I, I have a whole section on what is what does spiritual mean in the beginning of this book? Because I think it's a really important question. It gets kind of mushed over. And people like John Kabat-Zinn, who, who created Mindfulness Based Stress Reduction, says, oh, spiritual is too uh, mushy an idea, so I, I, you know, we're going to just leave that out. And that, to me, is kind of um, punting, as they say. You know? mm -hmm. uh, and... And I think spiritual has meaning, and, and that it's actually more practical, has a lot of practical aspects. To me, following the precepts is spiritual, you know. Uh, using, trying to use right speech is spiritual. Having, uh, being engaged in a constructive way in my work is spiritual. Uh, supporting my friends is spiritual. Coming to Spirit Rock, sometimes is spiritual. You know, it's, it's really inside. It's what we bring to a situation. The, the, one of the core principles to me of, spiritual, of spirituality, or the word spiritual, is that we understand that acquiring things is not the way to happiness. That we understand that material, materiality is not where happiness exists. That it's an internal experience. And which can be expressed externally, but it's, it's not about acquiring things, which is what our culture tells us is things happiness. Yes? Um, I'm really grateful to hear you talk about the sixth step this way. Um, very early on in my sobriety, someone pointed out the spiritual appendix in the back of the book where, um, paraphrasing, they um, talk about... Uh, they don't intend to give people the idea that everyone has to have this aha eureka experience mm -hmm. that for most of us it's a long slow process of one day at a time they call it a spiritual awakening of the educational variety yeah. and that's been my experience um it's particularly with the sixth step which i also feel is one of the most important turning points at least it has been in my sobriety i made the mistake early on the first time through the steps with my first sponsor thinking that I had to have this, I had to become entirely perfectly ready once mm -hmm. to um, have God remove all my defects of character. Mm -hmm. And I've since come to understand that by the word entirely, I mean, I, I, I have come to understand that that means in some way every day I'm working mm -hmm. at that as a practice. Yeah, yeah. And there's a level, there's a level of kind of lifelong commitment to that, that I'm never going to become entirely ready. Yeah. Um, you know, we don't graduate from the steps, yeah. uh, but there has been a simple, not easy, one long, slow process of one yeah. day at a time of yeah. looking at it. 
Thank you. You know, I, I think one of the the language of the steps and some of the language of the program, and indeed some of the Buddha's teachings, like the whole of the spiritual path is noble friends and noble conversations, are these kind of exaggerations. And if we take them too literally, entirely ready, or we're powerless, that we can start to get this very, they turn into these absolute statements that can really become restrictive. One thing you're reminding me that I, I did want to say, because I didn't talk a lot about readiness, but that one of my views of what makes me ready, what allows me to be ready, is my awareness of my own suffering. And that being willing to feel my own suffering to engage it, sort of in the way that we did in the meditation tonight, just going inside and feeling it, and not trying to push it away all the time, allows me to see the problems that are going on right now that need some work, that need the, something from the spiritual toolbox. And, and this is, I think, comes back to one of the things the Buddha said, which is never quite expressed in this way, I don't think, except by me, <laughs> um, more humility on my part, um, that the first noble truth is the truth of suffering. And the Buddha says about that, for, uh, about each of the four noble truths, he gives one, a one word that you should do in relation to it. In relation to suffering, he says, you should understand it. And what that means to me is that you should see it clearly. When I am being mindful of my moment-by-moment experience, I see when suffering arises. When I see that suffering arises, it's information for me that there is something off. In Buddhist terms, it means that I'm clinging to something. That's not always, you know, something I can see or it might not even quite solve it for me. But connecting with that, being present for that, For one thing, sometimes just feeling the suffering is enough. Again, referring back to the way we did the sitting this evening, just going into the energy of stress or anxiety in the body, sometimes just being present with it and breathing into it, seeing it clearly, allows us to naturally let go. Sometimes seeing that you're angry about something that's completely pointless allows you to let go of that anger. Oh, why am I so pissed off about this? Or what is the point of being angry? I'm just, you know, it, sometimes just seeing our suffering allows us to easily move into letting go. Other times, it's more like, oh, wow, there's something going on that I really need to deal with. I need to talk to that person, or I need to start, you know, going to the gym, or I need to, you know, get back to going to meetings or I need to go on a retreat or whatever. I, I see that there's something going on that needs some care and some time and some effort. So that, that for me, being ready, first of all, means that I have to see the suffering because that's, that's why I got sober, because I saw the suffering, clearly. I, that's coming out of denial is the seeing the suffering. It's becoming, and that's what allows us to be ready to change. And that's my theory on being entirely ready.
So yeah. That's one of the most one of the most difficult things for me in recovery is sitting with the feeling, and that came up in in our dialogue, or mm. our monologue, my monologue, um, was just being with it. Um, and of course, I'm talking about negative feelings. You mm -hmm. know, I'm, I'm fine with good feelings, <laughs> but you know, the clinging sensation, mm -hmm. and that's what meditations really help me with, <coughs> is to. Because there's nowhere to go. Yeah, you know, exactly. You're just there with it. And just that recognition, like you said, helps. Um, yeah. I mean, it's not always pleasant, <coughs> but it's helpful. So I, you know, just, I mean, as an addict and an alcoholic, the last thing I ever wanted to do was sit with a feeling. Yeah, you know, of I course. I wanted to change it immediately. All right. I wanted to change feelings before I even knew I was going to. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. In, in anticipation yeah. of, of future exactly. unpleasant feelings. Exactly. So for, yeah. to come around to a point where I can actually sit with it, yeah. feeling uncomfortable. You know, again, it goes back to part of what I was saying last week, which the value of, part of the value of meditation is just the fact that you're not doing anything. You, Nothing else has to happen. If you just sit there and don't do anything, you've accomplished something. <laughs> because inevitably, during that period of time, something came up that if you had not been sitting still, you would have done something about it. You know, you would have checked your email or gone to the refrigerator or gone, you know, picked up a book or something. You, know, you would have acted. And simply getting, training yourself to not act on anything is a great foundation for not, you know, doing stupid things you know, or harmful things to ourselves. And, to, and as you say, then, it further means that at some point we're going to go, oh, well, what am I feeling you know, in, our, in our meditation? And then, again, yeah, we practice, and it's called me meditation practice, and a lot of what I feel I'm practicing is just being with the stuff that comes up and finding ways to, you know, sometimes just breathe into it, sometimes take my mind back to my breath, sometimes try to release it, sometimes cultivate loving kindness. You know, there's a lot of different strategies for how to work with stuff that comes up. Uh, but, but playing with those strategies and working with them is key to this practice and key to then to life. Uh, yeah? Uh, a question on, on meditation. I'm a rank, a rank beginner. It's very difficult. Uh, it's not my normal mode. Uh, but I find what works tonight is I find that I use the breath almost like a giant paint roller to just, you know, to all the agitation, the thoughts. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, using the, I'm covering. I, you know, I'm not... Mm -hmm dealing with them in any way. I'm not uh -huh. accepting and, and releasing them. I'm simply... <laughs> you know, well... Maybe that's, a, maybe that's a beginner thing. We do what we can do. A strategy like that tends to um, stop working after a while. Which, and it's, you know, if you can just quiet the mind that way and get some peace, maybe that's what you need. And that's certainly useful 
thing to, to develop, that ability to just, as you say, paint over it for a while. Um, it's important to know that when that changes, there are other ways to work with it, rather than, oh man, this isn't working anymore, I'm out of here. You know? So, so um, just understand that that's not a permanent solution. Um, we should uh, we should close it up here. Uh, it's it's nine, but I'd like to close with a little bit of loving kindness, if people are willing to stay for a couple of minutes later. And next week, uh, I think we'll um, actually do the whole sitting period. Be a loving-kindness practice. Just for now, I'd like you to take a breath and go inside again, into the heart, into the guts. Seeing or feeling more accurately whatever is inside you right now. And consider if you could bring an attitude of kindness to your own feelings right now. So saying silently to yourself, may I be happy. May I be free from this, whatever this is. May I be peaceful. Held in the arms of love. held in the lap of the Buddha. May I be kind to myself. May I be kind to my feelings. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you for another enjoyable evening. And I hope you will look at the 
suggestions for this week and work with um, these ideas around step steps eight and nine. This is actually a little more elaborate than it's been the last couple of weeks. So I'll see you next week and drive carefully out there. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.